Welcome to episode 16 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today's topic is going to be how to form a critique group. And critique groups are very near and dear to my heart, um, particularly because that is actually how JJ and I met 10 years ago now. Hooray! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, Kelly brought this up before we started recording. And I was like, oh, my God. Was it really that long ago? Yeah, it's really been 10 years. <laughs> Which is crazy. Oh, that means that means I was twenty three when we met. That means I was twenty when we met. Yeah. God. Were you were you still at NYU or had you graduated? No, I graduated at twenty. Okay. Yeah, I graduated before I turned twenty one. So, which I don't actually recommend if you're like trying to join the workforce before you're legally able to drink. I don't actually recommend that. It sucks. <laughs> Especially not in New York. Yes, especially not in New York. <laughs> so, well, we should definitely start with our, our origin story then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 10 years ago in New York City, um, I JJ and I had a mutual friend. And this mutual friend invited uh, the two of us and one other woman over to her Upper West Side apartment to form a weekly writer's group where we would share writing on a regular basis and give each other feedback. And I think the woman who hosted was the only person that all of us had in common. I don't think um, any of us knew each other outside of that. Yes. So she just reached out to each of us individually and um, brought us all together. I think we met on Monday nights. Yes, we did. We did. And we would bring snacks. We usually had hummus and then uh, baguettes and Goat cheese with honey and brie, I yes. think, was our standard Monday night menu. And and a bottle of wine. Um, mm-hmm. The bottle of wine was crucial, you guys. Yes. <laughs> it's a highly useful tool for critique groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little al- alcohol, kind of loosen the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would meet every Monday night and we would exchange writing and... Um, discuss each other's strengths and weaknesses and offer feedback and lots and lots of encouragement. And it was really a wonderful, uh, just a wonderful time in my life. And especially in my writing life, I feel like that was the point at which I was the most productive writing wise for myself, because I've talked before about how I kind of fell away from writing for a little while. But at this point, 10 years ago, uh, I was out of school and I was writing constantly every day, all the time. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. So this woman who started this group, who invited us all to her apartment, um, she and I went to school together. We went to, uh, college together. And so we knew each other as writers there because we would meet kind of like Tuesdays and Thursdays at a local coffee shop in New York. And, uh, at that time, actually we were working on a graphic novel together, um, Mm -hmm. but also exchanging bits of our sort of respective novels that we were working on. And in college, 
I was working on a very thinly veiled autobiography. <laughs> Weren't we all? Isn't that what we all wrote in college? I feel like there's two ways to like try writing your quote first novel. It's either the thinly veiled autobiography or it's like an epic fanfic with the, the serial numbers filed off. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like two ways into it. And I've done both, you know, like all throughout <laughs> high school, I wrote a whole bunch of fan fiction. And, um, but in college I was much more pretentious and I thought I needed to be literary mm-hmm. and write the next great American novel. Uh, that's a thinly veiled autobiography. Um, but that actually isn't the project that I started working on when I was in this writing group with you guys. That was not the, mm-hmm. I'd already written that thinly veiled autobiography and put it aside. Um, and by the time we came to this writer's group, I started working on something else. Um, and I think that was the point too, where I actually made a conscious decision to start writing children's fiction. This was like Mm -hmm. the first book that I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to write what I actually want to read, (laughs) which is not the next great American novel, but a kid's book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just... You know, it's kind of a, you know, so much of critique groups and and in-person critique groups in particular, there's a lot, sometimes a lot more talking than actual (laughs) critiquing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of dissecting of our own individual personal lives and relationships. Mm -hmm. And And, uh, archetypes and Mm -hmm. what archetypal characters we fit into. Yep. There was lots of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did actually get around to critiquing each other's stuff. And I think at that point, Kelly, I think, no, you and you, Bex was also working in publishing at the time. She was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was working in finance because my first career after college was not in publishing. I didn't go immediately into it. I was actually working in finance then. Um, but let's see. And I think Helena was, she, I think she was doing freelancing. I can't remember what she was doing, but I, I'm pretty sure you and Bex were the only two kind of like publishing insiders that I knew mm-hmm. at that time. Um, so and I had just begun, I think I had just wrapped up my first internship and had just become an assistant at a literary agency right around the time that the critique group began. So I was very new to publishing at the time. (laughs) Yeah. And I wouldn't actually join publishing until almost four years later. Mm -hmm. It was right before I left New York, I think. Yeah. I think it was right before you left New York. So I didn't actually get into publishing until years after that. Um, so gosh, it just seems like I can't believe it was 10 years. I know it was like a completely different world (laughs) back then. I hadn't even met my husband yet when we first started our critique. group. Um, so many things were different. JJ and I were not living together yet because we just met. We eventually became roommates, um, for quite a while, but Obviously, we had only just met at this critique group, so it's so funny because I think of you as like my New York roommate, um, but we weren't even living together at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that critique group is honestly probably um, one of the best critique groups that I've ever had. Um, I've had some hits and misses with critique partners and critique groups before, and you know we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about how to tell if you've found the right fit for you or not. Uh, but that one just very serendipitously, it was, we all had similar enough points of view that I felt like 
each of you understood my work and yet had different enough points of view that you could see things that I couldn't um, mm -hmm. or bring different perspectives to the work that maybe I wasn't considering. Mm -hmm. So that first critique group that um, I ever joined, you know, aside from workshopping your stuff in college in a mandatory class or whatever, um, <laughs> was really, you know, I, I think back on that and I have specific memories of those nights and some of those specific critiques of my writing that I still think about and um, just really valued those Monday nights with you guys and a, an excellent friendship grew out of it because yes. JJ and I became great friends as a result of that group. You guys don't understand. I like courted Kelly as my friend. She did. She told me later, <laughs> she told me later, um, well after our friendship was established that she'd basically targeted me and said, <laughs> I am going to make this girl my friend. Yep. <laughs> And, and it worked. worked. <laughs> it did work. You found you friended me on Live Journal, and yes. we started walking God, home. Live <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> we can't even get into that because, wow, Live Journal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a different time ten years ago. Yeah, a different it was. life. Um, but yeah, that's actually how JJ and I met and we became roommates and we are now doing this podcast together. So, uh, critique groups can be excellent, excellent things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take it from us personally. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to how to find a critique group mm -hmm. because we were lucky, you know, we happened to ha have a mutual friend and we were all in New York at the same time. And we all, you know, it was just kind of a perfect storm of factors that made it a wonderful critique group for us. Um, but not everyone is going to be so lucky. So, you know, if you don't have this sort of perfect storm of wonderful things happening to find a critique group, how would you go about doing so? There are a couple of different ways that you can go about it. Really two main things. You can either start your own group or you can join an existing group. And the first step in both cases is going to be similar. And it basically just means that you have to do some research. The first place that I would usually start is online because if you don't already know people in person that you, or, or online, I, I guess we should say, um, you, you can have critique groups in person and have, you know, get together in person and meet and discuss your work. And I personally am a, a really big fan of that, but you can also have a single critique partner or a group of people, um, and exchange everything digitally and, you know, either Skype to talk about it or just write your comments in an email. Um, so there are certainly, plenty of ways to do it if you're not going to create an in-person group that's going to physically meet at the same spot. Uh, but if you are interested in having a physical group get together, um, the first place I usually start is online. Mm -hmm. If there is a literary center in your area, that's a great place to start. So for example, here in Minneapolis, we have the Loft Literary Center and they teach courses for writers on fiction or on career development. There is um, an open book building that holds or hosts author readings and other workshops. And it's just a literary center where 
literary things are happening. They have a community posting section on their website where writers can go and post about their critique groups or other events going on. So if you have some kind of literary center like that somewhere that has sort of like a central posting place, that's a great place to start because you can look around and see if there's anything that already exists or you can make your own posting. Um, another great place is local libraries. Most libraries will have bulletin boards, um, you know, set up where you can talk to the library and get them to approve your flyer and you could post a flyer with your email address and talk about um, the type of group that you want to put together. Sometimes libraries will host their own writers groups that you could join and see if um, that is something that could work for you. So the first place to start is really to think about where where would writers be? Where are the places in my community that writers would go? <laughs> and can I go there mm -hmm. and try to either find an existing group that I can join or make a post about starting my own group that other people can then join? Other places you can do it too are like meetup.com. You can set up a group that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so online is really one of the first places that I would go and then I would go to those bookish literary places in your community? I think, let's see, online has been pretty successful for me. Back in the days of LiveJournal, <laughs> before <laughs> LiveJournal was overtaken by, I don't know, some like Russian hosting company. I don't know what happened to LiveJournal. Um, there were communities that you could join there uh, that were focused mm -hmm. on writing. Um, that's where I kind of learned how to read, write, and critique fantasy, like genre fiction. Um, so LiveJournal was a place that I saw. Today, you'd it'd be probably Twitter or Tumblr. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, Twitter is a really great place. And, you know, after I moved to North Carolina, I was just sort of like, well, I don't know anybody here and I'm going to see if I can't find any critique groups or anything. So what I did was I actually joined SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and found the North Carolina chapter and saw that they had a critique group. So... You know, they. I sent them an email explaining who I was, what I wrote, that I was fairly new, that if there was an opening, you know, I'd love to join or just at least meet up and meet other writers in the area because, you know, I didn't know anybody. And they said, yeah, they said, absolutely, come on, come on over. And we met generally, we met about once a month, also <laughs> had a lot of wine. <laughs> um and uh, wine is pretty important if you have an in-person critique group. Let me just let me just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, and so that that was that's a place. But also, like, I've been here for a couple years now, and you know, I just sort of on Twitter, being active on Twitter, talking to people on Twitter, discovered that two friends, you know, on Twitter, actually lived near me. Uh, in Greensboro, one actually lives in my town, and it's you know the the more active you are in the community, as um, Beth Revis had mentioned this in, our, in my interview with her, you know you, you just become part of the community. That's when you start finding friends, and that's when you form critique groups. It's it's really mm -hmm. a, a connection thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's important too because I wanted to say that 
you know, if you join an existing critique group or you become a part of one, or even just a critique partner, one or two other people that you swap work with, uh, in a way it's like dating because you want to find the right critique group or partner for you. And not every group or every partner is going to be that. And so you want to go into it with an open mind and you want to go into it, um, you know, really being willing to, you know, give the best feedback that you can and be really open to receiving other feedback. But you also have to know that it's about compatibility. It's about finding people that understand your work and understand the direction that you want to take your work and, you know, for example, if you are a YA writer, you don't want to join a critique group where most of the people there never read YA and only write adult thrillers because they're not going to understand your genre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure that, yes. you know, the people understand or at least are familiar with the genre that you write and that your personalities can click because you know, it's an intimate thing to share your writing with someone else, especially when it's a work in progress and you want people that are going to be honest with you and that are going to give you, you know, the, the critical feedback and, and point out the flaws in your work that you need to be aware of. You know, nobody joins a critique group just to hear how great they are. <laughs> or if you do, then, you know, <laughs> are you sure maybe you should join a critique group, <laughs> at least not one with me in it. Um, <laughs> Because I love pointing out the things that I love in a manuscript and I love gushing about things, but I will also be quick to say, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't see where this is going. This character feels, you know, like it's acting out of character. You know, I will point those things out and a good critique partner should, um, you know, so if you don't find the right fit right away, it's okay to kind of gracefully back out and keep looking for someone or some other group of people. Yeah, the the fit is actually pretty important. It's, you know, the, the genre, as Kelly mentioned before, and make sure that they understand what you write, but also writing style and critiquing style should kind of be in sync because... I've been in groups where the sort of the modus operandi was to critique 10 pages at a time. While that it was good for my output, meaning it forced me to write, it meant that the feedback I was getting was really only on a prose level and it really wasn't on like a bigger picture level that I needed. Mm -hmm. My preference is mostly to finish work before sending around for critiquing. Um, so, or like large chunks, you know, large chunks of a book, much bigger than just kind of 10 pages or a chapter. Yeah. 50 pages or so. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then explain a little bit, I'm having trouble here. This is where I want the story to go. Um, I don't know how to get it here. And the sort of critiquing that I like uh, you know, over the over the years of been in critique groups, that the sort of style that I've evolved is I like to talk through my stories with my critique partners. Mm -hmm. I like to talk out thoughts, like my thoughts about it that may be kind of buried in my subconscious, but I'm not aware of yet. And just talking through those brings it out and it gives me ideas about how to proceed. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of critique that I like to get. 
Um, and then once the whole manuscript is done, then I will send it out and they will read it and give me feedback on the work as a whole, as opposed to kind of on a, a more micro level. Mm-hmm. And that's what works for me. Yeah. I, I do find that line edits are not very helpful. Yeah, I agree. For me, or or in general, I really don't like to give them. The only type of line edits that I'll give is if I'm critiquing a larger section of a manuscript and I'm taking notes in it. I might underline passages that are really beautifully written or a, you know, particular metaphor that I think is really striking. I might like circle it or outline it or underline it rather, you know, in the text and then write in the margin, "Oh, I think this is lovely" or whatever. But the, you know, the nitty the nitpicky sort of line edit sort of thing is not usually helpful for where people are in the process when they're bringing something to a critique partner or a critique group. Mm -hmm. When you're bringing something for feedback, it's usually either a work in progress or it's an earlier draft and you're looking for big picture things. You're looking for how to solve problems or obstacles that you can't get through. You're looking for a read on the full story and people to point out, you know, what sections of your plot might be weaker or where you need more character development. You're really looking for big things because, you know, you're all writers. You know how to write a sentence. You can go back later and go through all of that. Or later on, you know, when you're getting ready to submit or to query, you you can ask someone to go through with a fine tooth comb and, you know, give you some line edit, edits if you like. But I really think it's a waste of critique time. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a waste of everyone's time to sit there and go through your word choice or you repeated this word twice in one paragraph or you, you know, any of the kind of line edits that people will tend to give. And they're not wrong. It's not that the things that people are pointing out in those instances aren't there or don't need to be corrected. It's just that that's not actually useful feedback in terms of the writing process as a whole or why it is that people go to critique groups, I think. Anyway, I mean, maybe there's someone out there who really craves line edits from their critique partner, (laughs) in which case, you know, you do you. Yeah, I think it's because a lot of beginning writers don't know how to look at a work as a whole yet, perhaps. Um, you know, and I definitely had that problem initially too. I coming from a very pretentious, you know, thought I should be literary kind of background. I had the gift of writing extremely purple prose, (laughs) dubious gift. (laughs) It's not particularly great gift, but I was (laughs) voicey. I was, you know, I had a, a distinct voice that, you know, people liked and pointed out and talked and it was prone to excess. Yes. But you know, it was, it was distinct and I knew how to craft a sentence, but it's one thing to know how to craft a sentence. It's another thing to take those sentences and build a paragraph, a chapter and a story and Mm -hmm. craft is, you know, sentence level craft is the easiest thing to critique and the easiest thing to learn. The harder parts is, you know, learning how to write a whole book and how to, what makes a good book as a whole. And Mm -hmm. that just takes practice and time. And I think that takes practice and time critiquing because you're not going to go into a critique group knowing how to do this yet. You're going to go in there 
and focus on the things that you know. Oh, I think maybe the comma is misplaced here or whatever. Nowadays, I don't critique like that. That's how I started, certainly, especially like college level creative writing classes, because I didn't know how to workshop anything at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. So I focused on, you know, the sort of line level things and, you know, college creative writing classes anyway. There is, there's not enough time to write <laughs> a whole novel for one, but just no. college creative writing classes in undergrad, not, not graduate school and undergrad are just undergrad <laughs> their own thing. <laughs> I, I'm keeping all my stories to myself. I'm, I'm not telling any stories about my workshopping in undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But like, so here's an example that I don't think JJ will mind. When JJ and I were in that critique group 10 years ago, um, she had brought this middle grade um, novel that she was working on and we'd seen it, you know, repeatedly. At the time we met every week, which again is a lot. And we spent a lot of our time just chatting about non-book related stuff um, just because we became friends. But I think once a month is probably good yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, how long you need to actually read and review someone's work. And, you know, I, I think once a month is good, but we used to meet once a week and we'd seen several chapters. We'd seen a, a good chunk of this middle grade that JJ was working on. And I remember one of the critiques that I gave you at one point was that you were focusing on the wrong, that, that you weren't focusing on what I thought was your protagonist. Yes. There were three children (laughs) and there was a girl and two boys. And I felt, I felt like the girl was the protagonist and that, that JJ was not treating her like the protagonist. And that was my critique. And that's a big critique. And, um, it doesn't, I mean, I think that I was right. And I think JJ would now say that I was right. Cause that's how she's writing it now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but at the time it wasn't that she necessarily immediately changed her writing or whatever, but I, I explained it. I was like, this is kind of what I see. I think this character is the protagonist. I think it's her story. I think she's the one who has to go through this arc and these things. And I like the other two characters and I want to hear their story, but I don't think you should focus on them. I think you should focus on her. That's an example of a big picture critique. It's not about a certain line. It's not about a certain thing. It's about the story overall and the way that the story is being told. Yes. Um, And I also like this example because the way Kelly actually framed that critique was she says that she said that the story was about her and it revolved around her, like the happening Mm -hmm. things happened around her and, and sort of made her sort of a center point. Now, my reasons for not making the girl the protagonist were mostly boiled down to, I don't know who she is and I don't want to deal with that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Which, valid. Because <laughs> uh, I could say the same thing about the project I'm working on right now. Um, and the other one was, I didn't want her to be a Mary Sue. I was so burned out against... Not Mary Sue. I don't want to say Mary Sue. The sort of like author self-insert. I didn't want Mm -hmm. her to be an author self-insert. And I was so focused and worried that she was going to be too much like me that I didn't bother to take the time to even get to know her at all. So that was like in hindsight, those were part of my issues with with that. Mm -hmm. But another thing I think, you know, over the, the course of the critiquing and everything, and I and I've said this in earlier that earlier podcasts that Kelly was the one who taught me how to edit. 
because she's the one who taught me the difference between plot and story. Because mm-hmm. I remember, and I don't actually remember if it was at the critique group itself or one of those times I was furiously courting Kelly without her knowing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think I was maybe telling you what happened. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, but what's the story? <laughs> and you're like, I just told you this. And you're like, no, you just told me what happened, but what's the story? And it really did. It made me think about writing in a different way um, as not just a string of things that happen. It's how the string of things that happen tell a story, which is integral, but slightly separate from plot. So, you know, the sort of big picture critiques and, and I would say that I'm not wrong in saying, I think you and I learned to do this together. Like, absolutely. You know, we didn't all know this coming in immediately, like the course of talking these things out and, you Mm -hmm. know, discussing what books we liked. That was a huge part of our critique group. If, if, even if it wasn't our own work that we were discussing, we were discussing just books that we liked. Mm-hmm. Just how to build a story, the building blocks of stories that are told, whether they're told in film or in other books mm-hmm. or, you know, we discussed all of that stuff. And I think it's really interesting because so much of the things that you're saying that I taught you 10 years ago, I feel like you are reteaching me now <laughs> from the opposite perspective, because I still know those things to be true as a reader or as an editor. I can still look at someone else's work and see it in those terms. But now that I've started writing again, I've forgotten how to apply those things to my own (laughs) writing (laughs) in a a strange way. So just because you know, just, just because you know how to critique doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to write or vice versa. Luckily you can learn again, these skills. Um, but I feel like JJ is now kind of giving me back all of those things that I may have taught her back then. She's doing the same thing to me again as I G-chat her in panic about, I don't, I don't know how to write anymore. <laughs> Everything is terrible. What do I do? And you just ask me a lot of questions. And asking questions is a style of critique that I really like. I really like when people, I like to ask other people questions. And I, I guess I like when people ask me questions, although JJ will ask me questions now about my project and I just get mad because I don't know the answers. <laughs> but I like the asking of questions as a critique tool because I feel like it doesn't assume anything and it allows the author to remain in control um, of their work. Because a lot of times I have ideas about what somebody should do with their book. And I try not to get too prescriptive because, you know, I don't want to just take it over and have them write what I want them to write. It's still their thing. But I find that by asking well-thought-out questions, you can lead someone to give more thought to something and they can kind of work through for themselves you know, what did the answers to those questions need to be? What are some possible solutions to that issue? Yeah, the question part is really, I think, the heart of a good critique. And honestly, it's the heart of a good editorial letter. Um, because if someone tells you how to fix something, this is a theme that will come up. You know, it, it, we mentioned this in our revision episode. We mentioned this in our podcast with Beth. But when someone tells you how to fix something and it doesn't come organically from you, that then it they're taking your ownership of the story away from you 
Mm-hmm. So a good critique will help you in that it will force you to come up with these answers. Questions always ask, questions will guide the writer along into coming up with answers. You just point out this isn't working, but you don't necessarily say maybe so bluntly, this isn't working. You you ask, <laughs> it's all wrong. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> I've been known to say that sometimes. Yes. In critiques. <laughs> Kelly has said that. <laughs> Only to people I know very, very well. <laughs> um, but, you know, the questions are sort of, I don't understand why she did this. Would, you know, would she do this? You know, she seems more like a person who would take action and, mm-hmm. or she seems like the kind of person who would wait and see what happens. You know, when, you know, you ask questions kind of in that vein and you don't want to be so blunt and direct unless the critique partner is able to take it. Um, and Kelly and I have known each other long enough that we can just be like, mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Garbage. Try garbage. <laughs> Trash it and start over. <laughs> Um, but you know, this is us 10 years of working together in this way. So Mm -hmm. we, you know, we don't take personally, but in a critique group, especially if you're starting out and if you're kind of a newer writer, being a little bit more politic in your critiques is, is not a bad thing. And the other thing about critique groups I do want to mention, and this is maybe the harder part, the hardest part of all is actually finding a group of people who are, are at the same level as you, or maybe mm-hmm. slightly better. <laughs> yes. Someone you can learn from and learn with in a critique group. And that's really hard to do. That that actually may be harder than anything else. If you're going into an established group and they've been together and they have an established dynamic and they're already published, they're going to talk about different things. Um, but if you are all kind of at the same level writing-wise, I think that really, more than anything, is the best teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, you're learning together. You're teaching each other how to write. I think that, in my opinion, because this is how it worked for Kelly and me, is the ideal situation in a critique group. You grow together as writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the other thing is, you don't want to be the best in the group either, (laughs) because then you have (laughs) nothing to learn. (laughs) Yeah, you're just dispensing, you know, you're you're teaching everyone else, and who are you learning from? Um, So, yeah, you really do want to kind of have a pack of people that are kind of not jockeying for position and that it's a competition and, you know, you're ranked against each other. But you always want to be evolving. You want to challenge each other. You know, you want to read something really great by a member of your critique group and you want it to inspire you to do your best work for the next meeting. You know, you just constantly want to, um, be inspired by your critique group and encouraged, you know, we're talking a lot too about critiques and feedback that you can give. Um, and encouragement really is huge and commiseration. You want, you know, people who've been stuck before, you know, every writer can understand what it's like when you're just at a wall and you can't 
breakthrough. And you can talk about that in your critique group and those people will know what you're talking about. Um, but you want to encourage each other. You want to give, you know, positive feedback for everything that people accomplish when someone finishes their draft and they come to the next meeting with their completed draft and you all get to celebrate that it's finished. You've, you've written the end and typed the period and that's, you know, that's it. That's a huge accomplishment. And you get to celebrate that with the people that have kind of been with you on that journey to get that written. Another thing that can help too, because JJ talked about how learning how to critique is a process, you know, and that people start maybe not understanding how to give bigger picture critiques and you, you get better at critiquing the more often you do it. Something that you can do to help ensure that you get the most useful feedback from your group is to pose a list of questions or a list of topics that you want your readers to pay particular attention to as they read. You know, if you give them your pages and you say, I'm, you know, please pay particular attention to the voice to make sure the voice is consistent throughout or please pay particular attention to this subplot and let me know if you think that it's accurately foreshadowed or whatever. You know, if there's something that you know is worrying you or that you're concerned about, you can let your critique group know that up front so that they can take care to pay attention to those things and give you specific feedback on the things that you want to know. Yeah, I think you should go into every critique group, something to address, an agenda, essentially. You want to come up with something, you know, a point of view, because if you just walk into a room and be like, critique me, <laughs> you're just going to get a whole bunch of vague, vague comments that I, it won't ultimately be useful to you. I think going in with an agenda saying, these are the things that I want to focus on, or these are the things that are giving me trouble. These are the things that you need, that I need help with really in, in, in addition to helping you actually helps your critique partners and gives them something to, you know, look for, to tailor their comments, because if you're not looking for line edits and I'm normally am, am not, but the, you know, the, the sort of writing takes, I, I don't mind having them pointed out like maybe once or twice, but I don't need that the whole way through, you know, or, or places where something's unclear, you know, where basically like, I'm not sure who's talking and that's an easy fix where you just kind of go in, Oh, okay. I can put a dialogue tag right. here or whatever. Things that are unclear or specific writing ticks, mm -hmm. just kind of pointing them out casually. I don't mind, but I don't, there was yeah. good. Famously, in in one of our first critique groups ever, um, we were critiquing JJ's middle grade again, and I had a question about the kitchen boy. I didn't understand <laughs> the character of this kitchen boy, who I assumed was this servant in the house. Um, and it turns out it wasn't a kitchen boy at all. It was the it was the the girl's um, stuffed animal friend that you know was alive in her imagination, and she was talking to her her beloved stuffed animal. And for some reason, it just read to me as though it was an actual person, <laughs> and he was a servant who worked in the kitchens. I don't know, but, 
But that was something to point out. Like, where where like, did this character come this? from? What is when, like? Where is this kitchen boy hiding? Like, I think that was an exact question. Was where is she was like? It is definitely not a kitchen boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was it. I think they were like hiding in a crawl space or something. And I was like, is there room for two of them in there? <laughs> Are they fitting in there? I don't understand the logistics of this. Um, and that, that could very well have been just me not reading closely as, as much as it could have been you, you know, your writing being, um, unclear, but yeah, in general, line edits are not helpful. Mm-mm. I mean, there are times, there are times when in particular dialogue, if you're having difficulty with dialogue, that sort of thing, that I think is when line edits can be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but as opposed to actual style, which is what most people tend to focus on in critiques, you know, if you're sort of newer at critiques, they, they focus on the style of the prose rather than clarity. Um, but things like dialogue, dialogue, I can, I think can benefit from line editing, you mm-hmm. know, that's when you sort of underline clunky dialogue and be like, would someone actually sound like this? Would they actually yeah. say this in real life? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, this is something to be really careful of, too. If you write YA <laughs> and you're writing teen dialogue, <laughs> you want to be really sure <laughs> that it sounds like teenagers talking and not like adults trying to write hip teen dialogue. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot, you know, or, or sometimes I sometimes run into something in my own writing where I feel like all the characters sound the same, you know, Mm -hmm. if I didn't have a dialogue tag on there saying who specifically was speaking, you wouldn't be able to tell because there wasn't enough variety and authenticity in each character's voice. And so I agree that pointing out dialogue issues, um, is definitely something that you should do. And I would argue that that's a big picture thing. That's, you know, a building block of your story and it can be helpful. It's a character. Yeah. And it can, it can be helpful. It's very helpful to go in and provide specific examples. So your big picture critique is that the dialogue isn't believable or the dialogue all sounds the same or, you know, the dialogue is clunky or whatever. That's your big picture critique. And then to give an example of that, you can say here on page 47, I can't distinguish who's talking or this doesn't sound like a believable 15 year old boy to me, Mm -hmm. you know, so you can back up your big story thing with a specific example. YA, it's often authentic teen speak that will, or quote, authentic <laughs> teen speak that definitely sticks out. Uh, sometimes in fantasy and science fiction novels, you have the kind of info dumpy, as you know, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see that in movies too sometimes mm. where like, they're like, what's going on? And then some <laughs> character who knows more is like, well, this is going on. Um <laughs> The, the exposition dialogue is, um, it's, it's, it's hard to get around and, and a good writer should be able to deliver exposition and character in the same sentence and in the same, you know, bit of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- that's a line edit thing you can do for your critique partner, but as Kelly says, it really is a bigger picture thing. Um, so that's the th- the thing about critique groups is you, you one, you want to learn together. 
and two, the sort of smaller forest for the trees type of critiques doesn't help anybody learn. I think Mm -hmm. it, it just, you know, all it does, I don't even think it helps people improve their prose either. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I can't think of a single instance where I've gotten critique on my writing style that affected or changed the way I write. You know, I'm always going to be wordy mm-hmm. <laughs> and use 10 words when I could when I should probably use 4. Um I'm always going to have tangents and digressions and you know, even if the the tangents have now become m dashes and footnotes, as opposed to parentheses, you know, those are sort of writing quirks and ticks of my own that mm-hmm. are mine. That's my voice. That's how I write. So I don't think line edits on that level really help, but at least before the book is finished anyway. They don't help before the book is finished. Well, let's, that's about critique groups or partners, but what if you want to go it alone? Do you want to, you know, there are definitely writers out there, I think, who maybe don't function well in a critique group kind of setting. And I think that's absolutely true and completely valid. You know, some writers do best when the only cook in the kitchen is them. You know, they only want to hear their own voice. They, they solve problems as they go. The act of writing for them is about, you know that discovery and, and, um, they don't require any external feedback in order to solve those problems or, um, to overcome those things or to see where their manuscript needs tightening. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think if, if having a critique group or a critique partner just sounds like absolute hell on earth to you, then <laughs> you don't need one. I mean, I'm sure there are thousands of published writers who don't use them, um, who don't, you know, show their work to anyone but their agent or their publisher before, you know, the work is made publicly available. And that's fine. And if that's what works for you, then, you know, certainly do not feel like you need a critique group or a critique partner in order to be a legitimate writer because the only way to be a legitimate writer is to write. Yes. <laughs> and so you definitely don't need one. I personally find that I do need one. I need to be accountable to someone. I need to know that I have to turn in my work because people are expecting it. I need to know that I have trustworthy people there who are going to, um, pull me back if I start to go off a cliff. <laughs> you know, I really, I really need and value that. And that is the way that I can get my best writing done. And I still feel total ownership over everything that I write, no matter how many um, critique partners I bring it to. But it's something that really works for me. If it doesn't work for you, then don't do it. Nowadays, I think a, a sort of formal critique group doesn't necessarily work as well for me as it might have when I was younger. And I needed the sort of face-to-face time of talking things over. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, first of all, I'm not in the same city as any of my critique partners. <laughs> we all have to do this digitally. Um, I mostly use my critique friends as sounding boards mm-hmm. now. 
you know, and that may necessitate me sending them chunks of my work as, you know, like, this is what I have so far. This is what I'm having trouble with. Can you help, you know, talk me through this? Or whereas, you know, when earlier on, I, you know, bring kind of set pages for people to look at. But nowadays it's much more of a, I wouldn't necessarily, it is collaborative. I would say it's collaborative. Like I'm writing and just using my critique friends as, as soundboards, like just talking my ideas out to somebody and to my, to my friends. I do that on my own as well. I've mentioned that I journal a lot mm-hmm. um, and I talk through my story problems with myself on, on paper. Um, and the actual writing, you know, I don't share my work as frequently as I did when I was younger. My critique partners still see my work generally either nowadays it's simultaneously to my agent and my critique partners. Um, but they still see it at some point or another and they, and they give me their feedback, mm-hmm. but it's more of a collaborative process for me now in that I'm writing separately. And then I come up to a point where I don't know where to proceed. Then I will G chat Kelly or yell at her. If she's not on G chat by texting her <laughs> being like, get on the computer right now. <laughs> And he's like, I'm having trouble with this. And sometimes having a critique partner is just someone who will offer moral support. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> and having a critique partner who just says and holds you accountable, even not in person, but just holds you accountable. Or my, my friends who are published with whom I share my works on a more business side, just like, oh my God, my revision is due in two weeks and this, I think I've made it worse. <laughs> what do I do? You know, that sort of critique partner writing friendship, you know, mm-hmm. you are offering moral support as well as actual useful writing feedback. And ultimately this is the best outcome from a critique group, critique friend relationship. You, you become each other's moral support and, you know, you rejoice in each other's successes and commiserate with, you know, things when things don't go your way. That's the ultimate best outcome mm-hmm. from a critique group. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you need one. If you haven't found anyone whose critique style or writing style or anything like that, if you haven't found one that someone who jives with you in that way and you still are able to produce good work, then aside from maybe if you want one, you don't need a critique partner. <laughs> if this is all stuff you can do on your own. Yeah, no critique group is better than a bad critique group. Yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> because it, they say the same thing about no agent is better than a bad agent. And no critique group is better than a bad one because I think a bad one can destroy your your confidence in in what you write. And I remember, in, you know, when I was younger and in college and going to these creative writing workshops. Now, I've always had positive feedback on my writing ever since I was very young. You know, when I was writing fan fiction and, you know, random strangers would comment on my fanfic, be like, you write, you write really well. Or, you know, writing teachers in high school. Um, but going to a workshop and then... Ha- or actually this wasn't a college workshop. It was my college, college literary magazine where they just ripped everything to shreds (laughs) on a line by, not even 
line by line, like word by word basis. And it destroyed my confidence. It really did just made me second guess and doubt (laughs) and, you know, just be like, maybe I was wrong about myself the whole time. I thought I could tell a story, but maybe I can't. You know, I think a bad critique group can really stymie your writing as a put in whereas a good one will will help you grow but a bad one can actually nip it in the bud so the good news for everyone is that there is one other way that you can find a good critique partner and that is going to be on pub crawl Mm -hmm. in february pub crawl is going to host a little uh critique partner matchup. I think, uh, Steph and Stacy are working on that now. So if none of the previous things that we talked about looking online or Twitter or Tumblr or literary centers, if none of that is working for you, then you can always come to pub crawl. Yay. Yay. So we hope you guys, you know, will find really some of the best friends you'll make in your life. I think critique partners are definitely some of the best friends that I've ever made in my life because they understand a part of me that my partner doesn't understand for sure. (laughs) I mean, he's very supportive, but it's just, he doesn't get it. He's like, Oh, like, um, you know, that I think they're just really, really, I've met some really wonderful people through writing and through critique partners and they've all made me better writers. So I hope you guys are super successful and I'm excited to see Steph and Stacy's posts. Yeah. So that wraps it up, but uh what are you reading, JJ? I let's see. I just finished The Assassin's Mask by Sarah Zettel or Zettel. I'm actually not sure how you pronounce her last name. Um this is the third in a YA series about a young woman in the court of King George the first, and she's a spy. She's a spy and she foils Jacobite plots left and right. I really <laughs> love these. They're, they're really fun. They're, you know, fun, intriguey plot kind of twisty sort of books. Um, and I'm a big fan of historical fiction and I always enjoy reading about political intrigue. So, and this is a uh, really fun and really voicey YA. So this is the third book. I think it's, well, I don't know if there, there may be more, but the, a lot of the major storylines are wrapped up in this third volume. So I'm not actually sure if there's another one coming out, mm-hmm. um, but I did just finish that. And I also am reading the Scorpion rules by Aaron Bow. This came out last year. Um, and it is. Erin Bow, I actually read a book of hers called Plain Kate, which I really loved. This came out several years ago now. Um, and it's this really kind of beautiful, lyrical book um, about a girl and a cat. And it's just kind of this magical book that I really loved. And I saw that she had written, um, actually, this is a dystopian book. And I was kind of curious. So I picked it up and... Um, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it is very different from Plain Kate, which was kind of a very short lyrical story. This is obviously much bigger than that, but um, she's such an interesting, different writer that I, and I really have 
dystopian fatigue, you guys. Like, if there's even a hint of some sort of totalitarian government <laughs> in, like, the flap copy, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> like, I can't. But, you know, I, I like I said, Erin Bow is a very, very distinct and unique writer, so I was very curious on her take. And it is very different and very interesting and almost philosophical. So that's what I'm reading. What are you reading? Um, I have only read one and a half books because I just had a terrible bout of the stomach flu this week, which was awful. Yeah, it was terrible. And I honestly couldn't even have enough attention or energy to uh, read a book or or anything. So it was pretty rough. Um, I did read Soundless by Rochelle Mead. I really wanted to love it. It uh, is an Asian-inspired fantasy featuring a deaf protagonist. I wanted to love it very much. It was disappointing for me. Um, And then I started my first reread of 2016, which is uh, Trickster's Choice by Tamara Pierce. You really love those, don't you? I do. Out of all of the Tamara Pierce, the Trickster duology is my favorite. They're my favorite two books. I read all of Tamara Pierce uh, as an adult when I was actually working at Harold Ober Associates, which is the agency that represents her. And she used to work there back in the day. (laughs) I heard she wrote the Alana books uh, while she was working there and she should have been working. And uh, Phyllis Phyllis got very angry at her. And, you know, there's there's a whole legend about Tamara Pierce at Harold Ober. Um, You know, but of course I started working there and as is customary at literary agencies, you know, the shelves are filled with the books that the agency represents. And so all of Tamara Pierce's books were there and I'd never read them. And part of my job was to cover for our receptionist's lunch break. And so I would sit up at the front desk and I didn't have, there was no computer up there, so I couldn't really do too much work. And so I basically just got like an extra break to read for a little (laughs) while. And so I would read uh, Tamara Pierce's books. So I didn't read them until I was 25, 26. I'd never read them as a child. I don't know how they never crossed my desk. I felt like I'd read everything in the world when I was a child, but um, I never read them. So I was about 25, and I read them all out of order. I read each series in order, but I didn't read Alana first. I did. I think I read Dane's book first, um, and then you know I read the Circle series, which is her non-Tortel um, books, and so I read them all over the place and out of order, and. The trickster duology was, they're just my favorite. I just, um, I love the character of Ali so much and I love the other characters and I love the, the mystery and the political intrigue and, um, I just love those books. So I'm rereading that. That is my first reread. It's one of my comfort reads. You know, whenever I need something comforting, there's a number of books that I'll go to. Little Women is one of them and, you know, there's a whole bunch and, and this is one of them. So, I'm enjoying it very much. <laughs> I can't call Little Women a comfort read because the second half of that book just makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, it didn't used to. It didn't used to at all. As a child, I didn't have a problem with it at all. I was like, oh, this is great. Everyone's happy and it's fine. And it wasn't until, you know, I hit like, 25 or 26 when I was like, wait a minute, this is bullshit. 
I mean, I still love Little Little Women, but it's not a comfort read just because it makes me so angry. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to be comforted by something that pisses you off. So what are you working on? I am still working on um, the same project I was working on last time, which is this young adult fantasy novel. Um, I have made some decent headway on it, actually. I feel a little bit like I cheated because I unearthed a previous draft that I had been working on around 2011, and I got that out and I reread it partly as a way just to remind myself, like, what is the story? What am I working on? What do I like? What do I not like? And I ended up taking a big chunk of that draft, not the whole thing, um, but kind of maybe the opening two or three pages, um, and just completely copy and pasted them into my new Word doc and started over because the beginning of my story is more or less unchanged. And while it would probably do me good to rewrite that initial opening, I found that I was really afraid of getting started. And that I just needed something to get like just on the page so that I could just write without feeling like I was staring down this blank document and too afraid to put anything on it, uh, which is a recurring thing for me. I remember the first time I ever got a moleskin journal, I didn't write in it for like three months. And then finally, when I needed to write in it, the first thing I wrote was, dear moleskin, I am afraid of you. Love Kelly. <laughs> because <laughs> blank spaces really freak me out. Um, so, so I copied and pasted those initial two or three pages, uh, from a previous draft and slapped them into the new document and have been writing from there. Um, and I feel pretty good about it. There's a lot of things that I haven't figured out yet. I know there's a larger mythos to this story and I, know the very rough shape of it, but I need to really nail it down because it largely informs my plot. I know that there's a lot of things plot-wise that I need to figure out, but I also know that I was using those unanswered questions as an excuse not to write and that I really just need to be writing right now. I just really need to write it and I can try to overcome those problems through the writing process, or when I get to a point in the story at which one of those things is relevant, then I can stop then and kind of do more research and do more strategizing about what needs to happen. Because if I just continue to wait until I have it all figured out, then it's just never going to happen. Yeah, there is is a certain point in writing where you just have to bite the bullet. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you just, just got to start, you know, you have enough, Kelly, you have, you have enough. I know. And you were actually the one who told me that because, (laughs) you know, JJ and I are critique partners and I will send her my stuff and she sends me her stuff. And I was talking to her on Gchat and I was like, well, I don't have this figured out and I don't understand that. And I don't understand this. And I don't know what this is. And I don't know what that is. And she was like, look, you have your characters, you have the basic outline of the story, you know, the basic, you know, the type of story that you're telling is a reluctant chosen one. You know, this, you know, that, you know, enough, you don't know everything, but you know enough. You you can get started. 
And I really, I really needed to hear that because I was just going to stall forever. I was just going to stall and stall and stall. And there was always going to be something else that I didn't know, you know, that I needed to be a hundred percent certain of before I could start writing. Um, and you really told me, you know what, it's time to start. <laughs> now is the time. So I have started and it's, I feel pretty good about it. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. What about you? I'm still working on that Beauty and Beast retelling. Um, I did start it. Right now I'm at the point where I'm trying to figure the voice out. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is this is a little bit more difficult for me. Not, not necessarily for me. It's just different because... The setting is um, East Asian inspired, and I do speak Korean, and it's just the way people who speak, in particular East Asian languages, is very different from Western languages, and the way they think about things. It really, it's hard to explain if you don't actually speak the language, but it, the way you use language in that culture affects absolutely everything in the culture itself. So, for example, in Korean, there are levels of formality to your speech. And I don't necessarily even mean, like, English used to have an informal second person. The whole these and the thous, those are informal ways of referring to each other, um, which we've gone done away with entirely, and now we just use the formal second person, which is you. And... It's not even like that. In Asian cultures, there's entirely different modes of speech. And the sort of neutral, formal speech that you would use with a stranger or someone who's, who, whom you don't consider family, you don't actually ever use the word you. <laughs> and ever. Because to actually use the word you is of either a sign of intimacy or if you haven't agreed to use what we call panmal, which is half speech, if you haven't agreed to use informality, it's actually considered very rude and insulting. So there's a lot of sort of nuances of East Asian culture and speech that I want to get into the writing without making it incomprehensible. <laughs> right, because you're still going to be writing in English. Mm -hmm. Um, and often, for me, this is why a lot of East Asian fantasies are not successful for me, because it feels like set dressing and not actually understanding the way culture works or the way um, particularly Confucian societies interact with each other. So for me, the, you know, you had mentioned Soundless, and I remember reading it and just not feeling it. It didn't feel Asian at all, aside from the girl on the cover. And mm -hmm. that was it. It didn't feel that way to me. So that is kind of what I'm struggling with. And in particular, even though I speak Korean and, you know, that is my milk tongue, my actual primary language is English. That's the language I mostly think in. That's the language I speak. That's the language I understand the nuances of that I just love in general. So, but it's very different from like East Asian speech patterns and, and thought. And even when you look at like East Asian poetry, it's 
very simplistic and strange, not strange, it's strange to the Western reader, but it's kind of much more simplistic, imagery-based, a bit more abstract, whereas poetry in Western cultures is, there's a lot of rhythm to it, rhythm, Mm -hmm. language, all the sort of alliteration, consonants, accents, things that are naturally in my English writing voice don't actually exist in Korean in particular, because that's the East Asian language with which I'm familiar. So trying to kind of find a voice that is evocative of East Asian culture while still being in an English mode is kind of... I'm not actually thinking about this so academically or concretely as I'm writing, but it Uh is something that I am trying to struggle with. Like, what does that voice sound like to me? How does, what does it sound like? So, but I, I am, I'm writing. I just, I'm at that point where unlike Kelly, where I won't like (laughs) Kelly will stall. (laughs) I will. (laughs) Me, I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. I don't care. (laughs) Like if I don't have enough, then too bad. Like, I'm just going to. I, I get impatient. I'll just, I'll, there's a certain point where I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Got to rip off the bandaid. I've always been like that though. It's not just writing mm-hmm. anything, anything. I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> going to run headlong into this thing. Cause I just don't have the patience to wait anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I can verify that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are you, what about off menu recommendations? Are you jo- enjoying anything else? Uh, am I enjoying anything else? Um, I'm not really doing too much else. I just started watching, um, The Magicians on Sci-Fi, which is a new television show based on the, um, trilogy by Lev Grossman, The Magicians, The Magician's Land, and I think The Magician's King. King. The Magician King, yeah. Yeah. And I read the books and I had complicated feelings about them that included a lot of enjoyment. I really did genuinely enjoy them, but they were difficult to read. And, you know, I have some conflicting, uh, con, you know, just, just some, just some thoughts. I I think it was a good example for me about how I can like something and still think it's problematic at the same time. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, because that happens because human beings are complex. Um, and a lot of the things that I thought were problematic was the treatment of essentially the female protagonist is named Julia. The television show is not really doing much to alleviate that. It's kind of doubling down on it and adding in scenes uh, that sort of reinforce some of the horrible stuff that happens to that character that isn't necessarily in the book, but they're adding it in uh, uh. to the show because they're fleshing some stuff out. So I'm not sure if I'll stick with it. I do think it was well done. It was enjoyable to watch. One of the coolest things for me, I think, um, was seeing the way that they visually portray the magic. So um, in Lev Grossman's books, magic is performed through a series of complicated hand movements that are really intricate. And they hired um, professional tutters, which is a specific subset of hip hop dance that is about really intricate, um, you know, hand movements and rapid action. They hired uh, two choreographers to choreograph all the spell work in the show so that it would be, you know, really specific and unique and yet still read (laughs) like 
a language and, um, you know, and so that part was really fascinating. And I guess Lev Grossman has commented on it as being almost identical to what he imagined in his mind. And it was really hard for me to kind of think about it, you know, because he writes about these books and I don't think I ever had a clear picture of what that would look like. I think I think of magic and hand gestures as being like these big sweeping, you know, you wave the wand or you, you know, shoot the fireball out of your hand or, you know, like I think of these grander, more emphatic, large sweeping gestures. Um, and it's a lot of really intricate finger movements and like very specific configurations. Uh, and so I never really imagined that really in my head and seeing it on the screen has been really interesting. And I think it looks great the way they've done it in the television show. Um, and it, so that part has been really neat. It's visually really cool and it's still a good story. I still enjoy the story, you know, for all the parts of it that bother me. I don't, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to stick with it or not, but I guess that's the other new media that I've been engaging in. What about you? Um, Nothing particular or anything new. Um, I am only able to play Life is Strange on weekends, and so I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if you were finished, but I knew if you were finished, you would have oh, told me. Oh, I would have so. absolutely. Like, the minute I finished the game, you <laughs> betcha I'd be texting you. I'm probably going to finish this weekend. Um Yay! But just during the week, I don't have time, which mm. kind of kills me. <laughs> like, <I'm just> like, <laughs> Um, I do spend most of my time reading at the moment, so that's kind of my main thing aside from writing and the day jobs that I do. Uh, I have started listening to, um, it's not a new podcast to me, but it's Minorities in Publishing. It's a podcast oh. about, run by a writer named Jen Baker, and she, uh, interviews people, uh, minorities, obviously, who work in the publishing industry. And um, so I, I've been listening to that and kind of finding it somewhat interesting to hear sort of how other people of color, generally it's people of color who've gotten their start in the industry and what they do. And um, so that's kind of been sort of a side thing that I listen to while I'm at work because I mostly mm -hmm. listen to podcasts while I'm at work. Me so too. it's a, a plug for them. Um and uh, full disclosure, you guys, I got asked if um, to be interviewed on it. So at some point, I uh, will also be appearing on Minorities in pub pub uh, Publishing. <laughs> but, That's um, awesome. Yeah, so I've, I've kind of been running through all their backlog. or And it's uh, kind of been just especially after Lee and Lowe had put out that diversity sub survey. I read that. And, you know, none of the results were particularly surprising to me uh, at all. So uh, I was, you know, I just kind of thinking about that and thinking about, well, what can anyone do to change any of that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was kind of, kind of sobering. So I went back and found the podcast and sort of downloaded the kind of the backlog log of it. And, uh, oh, and there's another one called Lore. Uh, this is a podcast that just takes um, an urban legend or a horror story and dissects, you know, its history and sort of who tells it, why, kind of a sociological, anthropological study of these particular urban urban legends and, and horror stories. And it's so totally up my alley. It's not even funny. <laughs> 
so that's the other thing I've mostly been enjoying. It's mostly podcasts because that's what I can listen to at work. And then I come home and then I shut off that part of my brain and read. <laughs> and so that's pretty much it. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about romances and love interests to celebrate Valentine's Day. Yeah. As always, <laughs> as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.